0: Hold on to your butt. <laughs> Welcome to episode 59 of the Civil War Breakfast Club. Tonight, I'm joined by my co-host and veteran survivor of my Tuesday night moods for the last year and a bit, Darren Weeks. I'm Mary and my spirit animal is General Mead's mood. Hey, Darren. Wow. How's I'm, it going? i
1: suffering from PTMD, <laughs> post-traumatic <laughs> Mary disorder. So that explains a lot, actually. <laughs> Yeah, boy, this is an exciting start to this one.
0: <laughs> Did you see why I said I almost had to change my intro?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Ooh, real good that one. Anyway, what's happening? What's going on?
0: Not much. I see by your name, you survived my mood. Apparently. <laughs>
1: Oh yeah, you you, you certainly was the struggle was real this week, that's for so damn sure.
0: <laughs> well apparently yeah. Mercury is in retrograde, which our technology certainly reflected that tonight. We're recording a little bit later than what we normally do, but whatever we're here, we worked out all the issues we were having and so yeah. here we are.
1: I never thought Mercury was real. I thought it was like birds, it just didn't exist.
0: <laughs> Burbs. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Anyway,
0: so how are you doing?
1: I'm. I'm we're doing pretty damn good, mm-hmm. you know? life is good life is great yep. it's been raining here forever you know it's been on uh, but it's 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 coming around it's raining stopping so coming in that fall season again pumpkin mm-hmm. beer and pumpkins coffee and footballs and full swing yep. pro and college so things are things are good things are pretty yep. good technology is hanging in there i bought myself a pumpkin that's very you exciting did. that's on my steps right now so it's very exciting is that the so million I, dollar I, pumpkin Yep, it was six bucks for pumpkin. It's now the uh (laughs) I'm not a proud owner. I'm a I never thought I'd be a pumpkin owner, but that's what I am. That's what we are. So
0: So let's get down to business before we get to uh the discussion of the road to Perryville, which is our topic for tonight, and we'll explain that in a few minutes. What are you drinking?
1: Well, I'm drinking pumpkin spice cannoli right here. And I've had this before. This is this is this is from Shea Bean Brewery, I think that's it is. I can't really read it because my it's dark in here. I'm drinking out of my North Civil War Champions coffee mug because although we're not going to get into the details of the battle on this episode, that'll have to wait till next episode. We can talk certainly about hinting at who ultimately wins this one. Yes. So that's what that's what I did. Yes. What about yourself? I'm sure it's something that's a downer, whatever you're drinking.
0: So I am drinking, and then Bernice flipped the canasta table which is an East Coast double India pale ale, and it's from Refined Fool Brewing Company out of Sarnia, Ontario, which is a very good brewery. Um, it's also an 8.2% beer, which um, I actually need tonight after the technology issues, and I'm drinking it out of my Rock of Mill Springs mug. Excellent. Rock of Chickamauga, George Henry Thomas mug, because he we might talk a little bit about him tonight in our lead up, but we did say on our Facebook Live that we were going to be covering Perryville, and that. And that's Mm -hmm. what we've been talking about for a few weeks. Well, we decided in our research that Perryville is a very complex battle and the lead up to it is just as important as the battle itself. So we didn't want to like rush through it or whatever. So tonight we are going to be talking about the road to Perryville.
1: Well, they say the, you know, the destination is not as fun as the journey. So today we're going to talk about the journey. We're going to talk not about the Battle of Perryville specifically that we'll say that until next week. We're going to lead right up to it. We are going to call the road to Perryville. Mm-hmm. So, we'll, you know, and we, we were talking a couple of days ago about the importance of the state of Kentucky. I think the Commonwealth of Kentucky, as it's yeah. officially called. So we thought unless you really get into why and how the lead up to this battle was, it kind of does a little bit of a disservice to the battle. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise it's just the battle. But this battle was one of the more strategic, one of the more important battles of all the Civil War. For whatever reason, it's not going to it doesn't get the Gettysburg Antietam love. But I think when you when you study this, you realize how important it certainly was. So we have to go in the way, way, way back machine. We got to set the DeLorean back way back. Ooh. Okay, so is it time Cher's for me to sing? To be, we got shares going to belt it out to the back row on this one. This is how far back we got to go. If this
0: I one. could turn back time,
1: God, I'm telling you what, God, those, <laughs> those poor windows that broke in my neighborhood. Anyway, <laughs> at least not so, call me maybe. Oh that's oh, 8.2, you're on your way. Yeah, so I am. you know, so so we're gonna talk about the setup and why it was important, and then we're gonna talk about how the North and the South kind of danced around each other until they finally arrived at Perryville and really, really slugged it up. Yeah. So Battle of Perryville at Mahiah by 1862 is the second year of the war, it was clear that this was gonna go on for a while. At this point, those Lincoln 90-day enlistments were laughable considering that it was gonna last a lot longer than 90 days. The Union and the Confederacy by 1862, you know, they needed battlefield wins for different different reasons. You mm-hmm. know, the Rebs obviously need the win there because of the skyrocketing cotton prices in Europe. They're hoping that if they get a big win, they maybe can get some recognition from Europe. Lincoln, of course, needed the Emancipation Proclamation as well as his midterms in 1862 and, of course, his election in 64. So as the war was kind of going around and around in the East, the focus was turning on those border states. And specifically two ones in the West, Missouri, and especially Kentucky. This will ultimately culminate in October 8th, 1862 in the Battle of Perryville. But Kentucky, it was an extremely, extremely important border state for both the Union and the Confederacy. And it was really because of, of the terrain for the most part. Mm-hmm. The Ohio River runs right through it. A river runs through it. They should make a movie called that. <laughs> and it's extremely important for, this, for that state's economy. The state of Kentucky, the Commonwealth of Kentucky, I got to keep saying that, right, but they had a a solid, real economic ties to the north. It was full of supplies, railroad lines, river ports. We talked about this when we talked about Richmond a little bit. Neither Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, I told you, you may have heard of him. He's the
0: man with the hat, right?
1: He's the guy with the hat, okay? Okay. Or North Jefferson Davis particularly were very popular in Kentucky, despite the fact they
0: they were born there about a year apart and less than 100 miles from each other.
1: I mean, Lincoln from Hardin County and Davis from Todd County. And the funny thing about it is Lincoln's running for president in 1860. yeah, And he won. He won. But he finished pretty much dead last in his own home state of Kentucky. Mm -hmm. John Bell won it with with 45% of the vote. Lincoln got less than 1% of the vote in Kentucky. And he still won. This is his home state. It was a pro-slave state, but still wanted to be part of the union overall. You know, Henry Clay, he was another Kentuckian. You know, he did his thing in 1820 with the 1820 Compromise, and it kept the pro-enslave forces at bay in Congress. And it's going to kind of show a little bit in the state as it kind of goes through. So by February of 1861, Kentucky was a complete friggin' mess.
0: Yeah.
1: It is a pro-union legislature, as a pro-Southern governor, and of course, the great Bariah Egg McGoffin. We talked about him, right? McMuffin. And McMuffin, right? you know he tells lincoln that um he's not going to help him militarily he says Mm -hmm. kentucky will furnish no troops for the wicked purpose of subduing her sister southern states okay no black and white area there no no gray area anyway kentucky had two militias one pro-union of course one pro-southern april 18th a couple days after fort sumter the legislature creates that unionist militia guard that home in defiance of mcgoffin who was sympathy his sympathized with his friend simon Bolivar buckner who we'll talk about here he, yeah. he had set up that pro-southern militia guard so it was kind of like a yin and yang in that whole state may 16th 1861 important day for this whole conversation the Kentucky house and senate each passed a proclamation of neutrality and they would sit this one out they're going to sit out the war despite the fact that many kentuckians were itching for a fight at home they just wanted to fight because for whatever side, the Mm -hmm. state government, basically what they did is they kind of followed Henry Clay's example and just kind of played in the middle, pro-slavery, pro-not. Well, they were very
0: unionist-leaning state to begin with because they have these ties, very close ties to Ohio and Indiana. And even the ones that, even the slaveholders, they were very pro-union, even though they were slaveholders. So there's this very much this union sentiment in the state. And- the geography definitely plays into it as you said you know they're growing crops in the south, south part of the state that are more like what they would grow in the deep south like Kentucky's cash crop is is tobacco and then in the north they're they're growing the more cereals like the wheats and all that and probably barley I don't know I don't know my crops very well but anyway they're oh, all but the cereal I mean, grains. but yeah
1: certainly a state that creates frosted flakes is a serious
0: situation right they're no, great but, oh that was bad Poor Tony that's the Tiger. An absolute
1: edit that one out. But, <laughs> but the thing with Kentucky does, though, is they say, look, we're not going to fight. We're not going to do mm-hmm. it. But we'll we'll mediate between you two, which is, I don't know what the heck that means, but obviously it didn't really happen. May 20th, McGoffin really has no choice. He's got to sign the proclamation, okay, at the Commonwealth of Kentucky. And, again, it's important to call it a Commonwealth. Somebody needs to tell a Missouri football coach that's a Commonwealth. Just <laughs> remind him, obviously. <laughs> <Ooh>. But, but – <laughs> He signs that means that the the Commonwealth of Kentucky is not going to choose sides. It's going to stay in the middle. And that's really what the whole thing is about here. Now, Lincoln, again, not popular. Okay, he's pissed off at Kentucky because they're not going to join the union cause that he has that famous quote. I hope to have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. Yeah. And then he says, but then he's also happy. Hey, they didn't secede because he also says. To lose Kentucky is to lose the is the whole game. Yeah, I was just
0: going to say that one, that that was, you know, he feels like he could lose the whole game with it. Because if, you know, I think he's of the attitude, like if Kentucky leaves, then, you know, the other border states like Maryland, the other ones are going to be like, oh, fuck that. We can leave too. Let's go.
1: That was the big thing, too, was was if Kentucky had flipped, it's very possible that almost immediately later Missouri would have and then yeah. Maryland probably would have just cause, because they would yeah. have. But who's to say? the compromise did, didn't end well. What it didn't do is it didn't end that political climate in the state of the, the, the Commonwealth. Here I go. With that You mean the vol- great state volatility. of
0: Kentucky?
1: Oh, a great state of Kentucky. You've got it. Okay. It kept Lincoln's and Davis's eyes both on that state. It was basically a tinderbox. And they were both mm-hmm. looking at it, waiting for the state to flip, and hopefully to their sides. Any challenge to that neutrality, was going to blow it up. It was that on the edge. Now, Davis was hoping and a praying, okay, that Kentucky would eventually secede and was afraid he was going to, something was going to happen to screw it up. They ended up stepping in it themselves. So the rebels, yeah, they are amassing troops in the western end of Tennessee just south of that Kentucky border to the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers, okay? Also, the the access points of the Mississippi River, as well as near Missouri and the other western border state, the other one, right? The Union, by the way, begins to gather men in Cairo, Illinois, just over the border west of Kentucky on the Ohio River. So what you have is you have the Union Army in Cairo, Mm -hmm. west of Kentucky and the Rebs south along along the Tennessee-Kentucky border. Basically, just staring at each other. That's what they do. They just stare at each other, you guys right? Just stare at each other. Just waiting for them. Want somebody to make a mistake. Not sure if one of them was expecting a phone call that never came, but that, who the hell knows? But that's um, <laughs> but that's what happened. So, twenty-five times. So, oh, God, tell me about it. So, September, tw- September of eighteen sixty-one. The shit finally hits mm-hmm. the fan. Okay, when you are putting up people in the bar and they're drinking and they're belligerent, it's going to be a fight eventually. Yep. Okay. In Missouri, near the the western border of Kentucky, along the Mississippi River, finds itself the Confederate General Gideon Pillow, a guy who is as soft as his name. Okay, he takes his orders from Leonidas Polk, the fighting bishop from North Carolina, in the head of that Western Department Number Two. What they're going to do?
0: So it was is a shitty department.
1: It. it certainly was. It will cross. The, it's going to cross the river into Kentucky and occupy the Kentucky town of Columbus. Yeah, a town, by the way that some people think Thomas Jefferson wanted to be the U.S. Capitol. And that's a debate. Interesting. It's a long story. If you know anyone from Kentucky, they'll tell you that. Columbus was supposed to be the capital. September fourth, 1861, Pillow has that hold my beer moment. Yep. Right? Where he is going to take the town. It's also the northern point of that Mobile Mobile and Ohio Railroad. So in response, of course, so right off the bat, the rebels violated this neutrality. Yeah. So in response, Ulysses S. Grant is going to leave Cairo. And will enter Kentucky and occupy Paducah, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. So he's going to say, well, he's there. He's there. I can go. The powder keg was lit. And Pillow's move likely caused a facepalm from Jefferson Davis that could be heard all the way in Mississippi. <laughs> Is this, this was not what he wanted. No. So September 1861, Kentucky's legislature predictably condemns the Confederate move into the state for violating the neutrality agreement and votes to enter the war on the Union's behalf. Now, The Union's going to place Fort Sumter hero, Robert Anderson, in charge. They're not going to sit there and throw their whole weight behind it, but they're pissed off. Now, the Union troops are going to enter Covington, Kentucky, just on the other side of the Ohio River as well, near Cincinnati. Today, home of the great Main Strauss, where the great cigar whiskey bars are, if the mood should strike you. Just saying, okay? Also the home of William
0: H. Lytle, who we did an episode on a few weeks ago.
1: We're going to hear about him soon. Not today, we'll talk about about Old Lytle next week, so if you're you know, if you're excited for light, will get you, you know, wake the kids, call the neighbors. Next week's going to be the day. In Columbus, okay, the Rebs have 20,000 troops who are building fortifications near the Mississippi River to defend the town from an attack they have to assume is coming as a matter of time. Yeah, well, it's considered, Columbus played.
0: was considered the key at that point to reco- to controlling the Mississippi in that area. So that's why they felt the need to take control of it. Yeah,
1: if, but regardless wherever they were going to be, they had to think they were to get thrown out.
0: Now, Polk chose poorly with this
1: move, obviously, and he was completely tone deaf to the political football that was Kentucky's neutrality. But now he's entrenched in Columbus. He's got 20,000 men and 140 cannon. So he's he's strapped it on. He's ready to go, okay? He certainly does. Now, Davis sees this YOLO moment from Polk and he, that he violated this neutrality agreement and has no real choice now but to go all in and try to take the state over. Yep. Since Kentucky flipping without conflict was gone, see, what he was hoping for was eventually Kentucky, because of the pro-slavery, they were eventually going to slide over on their own. Yeah, And he was just sitting and waiting, but he was afraid that if the rebels did something stupid to piss them off, he was going to lose them. And Pillow and Polk pissed them off and he lost them. So, so he's going to send a guy named Felix Zollicoffer to guard the Cumberland Gap, and yep. Simon Bolivar Buckner to capture Bowling Green in that Louisville-Nashville railroad. So Davis, like friggin', you know, he, he, he absolute Leroy Jenkins moment. But now we have to go in, so everyone's going in, right? Albert Sidney Johnson, okay, the commanding the Rebel Western Department, has a huge pain in the ass situation, okay? So his army now is now in, in Columbus, Kentucky, and spread all the way to the Cumberland Gap, which yep. is four hundred miles away. And he's only got forty-eight thousand troops to cover. I'll let you figure out the, how many men per mile that is, but it's not a lot of people. It's a thin line. Don't make right? me do math. No, no, that, that's a that's a bad situation for anybody right there. So we talked about this in one of the earlier episodes about that thin line that Johnston had. Yeah. But the Union rebel troops in the same theater quickly began the battles that would percolate in Kentucky that would explode later in the year. So January eighteen sixty-two, Felix Zollicoffer. He's yep. going to be killed and his army defeated at the Battle of Mill Springs by the George the Rock of Mill Springs. So Interest, Thomas, right?
0: a, a couple of interesting things about that battle. So first of all, it's got about a billion different names. Yep. Um, and the reason that it is called Battle of Mill Springs is because of General Thomas's report that he writes after and gets published in the newspapers. That's why it's known as that. Its other name is Battle of Fishing Creek. And there's other ones too, which we are definitely going to do an episode about this battle. So stay tuned for that, but not until January um, It's the first significant Union victory in the Civil War. But again, it's in the Western theater, just doesn't get talked about that much, right? The two Confederate generals there, General George Crittenden, his brother is actually fighting for the Union. And as you said, General Felix Zollicoffer, who apparently wore a white jacket and blue pants into the battle. He got killed when he was talking to a, a Union officer. The Union officer's like, I don't know who you are. And they're trying to figure out who the other one is, and he ends up getting killed. Well, after the battle, Zollicoffer's killed, but Crittenden is accused of drunkenness after the battle, gets demoted, and eventually just gets kicked out of the army because he was constantly drunk, apparently. So this broke the Confederate line that was in eastern Kentucky, and it would not be until the summer that the Confederates are going to start to try and take it back. But Zollicoffer getting killed is why General Edmund Kirby Smith gets the command that he does.
1: Now don't forget too what's going while this is going on a couple months later, yep. U.S. Grant and his 10,000 men and the the guys on the boats, exactly. They launched that that joint Navy Army campaign, which is going to culminate in the forts Henry and Donaldson captures near that Kentucky Tennessee border. Mm-hmm. And this was the, really the weak point of Johnson's line. But so Grant is, you know, he drives the rebels out of Fort Donaldson. He takes that surrender from his friend Simon Bolivar Buckner on February 16th, 1862. It got an unconditional surrender nickname. But what it did too is it earned a shit ton of respect from Lincoln for Grant. Yep. Now we'll talk about how this goes, but, but what these two attacks really did, well, the the, the captures in Mill Springs, is it pushed the Rebs out of Kentucky, Exactly. Right? Yep. Like to your point. And also, what it did too, it also allowed them to, s- to s- slide into Nashville and take Nashville.
0: Exactly. Right?
1: Yeah. So now the nightmare of Davis has come to full fr- fr- friggin' mm-hmm. tuition now making a huge miscalculation of a general making a frigging blunder that costs his army the hope of control in Kentucky. So for this moment, as we step in early spring, 1862, it's Kentucky is a complete mess. So now they have to spend all this time to go ahead and try to get it. So Albert City Johnson decides what he wants to do is he wants to bring the remains of his army together so he blew his conch shell you know and to <laughs> gather all the troops in corinth mississippi yeah. right and his hope was obviously to regroup and rest his army to create an opportunity again to capture kentucky so the army he had was a complete mess it was a hodgepodge of rebels uh, corinth basically became the island of misfit toys for a while <laughs> and that's exactly what it was he did have Pierre Gustave to top guard with yep. him. He did have Braxton Bragg with him. So he had a couple of generals who, you know, we'll, we'll talk about them, right? For the Union, though, they just kicked the Rebels out of Kentucky. Yep. But they weren't wrapped too tight either because they didn't have tight control of the of the, the Commonwealth there despite kicking them up. Henry Halleck, Department of Missouri, this is when you're going to get the controversy with Don Carlos Buell with this yes. stuff, right?
0: Yeah. There's all this controversy between the two of them, and I don't quite understand what was going on there. But what happened is it goes back to when um, Buell was almost kicked out of the army for getting in an argument with somebody and beating them over the head with the butt end of his rifle.
1: It was a sword.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, a sword. He ends up just completely getting off like nothing happens. And Halleck always believed he should have been punished for that. If you know Halleck, you know that once you're in Halleck's doghouse, you ain't getting out.
1: You know who else? Want? Winfield Scott wanted him punished for that. Exactly.
0: They both did. So
1: so Don Carlos Buell was yeah. new. He was freshly minted. He was still shiny in the yeah. army. And he does this. And he's got the top of the army guys saying, who the hell is this guy? Get him the freak. Yeah. So he, he gets court-martialed, but he gets off somehow. I think there's a million reasons why we'll talk about why he doesn't like Don Carlos Buell. But
0: Halleck, is, Halleck doesn't like anybody. Halleck doesn't like anybody except maybe his pet dog, if he has a pet dog. The dog. Hallie. Halle. Hallie, yes, Hallie. <laughs> God, <it's> so bad.
1: <laughs> no, it's just so just...
0: The thing about Buell, though, and we'll talk about him in
1: detail in a little while. Yeah. He was ambivalent, and he was wishy-washy. He was one of those, I'll, you know, I'll do the dishes tomorrow. He was one of those guys, right? Yeah. And so – Halleck wanted to do something. He's like that guy with the, with the stick poking the guys. Do, yeah, do something. something That's do him, something. Right? Yeah. So Halleck decided, you know, what, what he's going to do is he he's kind of with Buell kind of working kind of together side by side. Yeah. Okay. Kind of like Howard and um and Hancock and Gettysburg was supposed to work. Yeah, that, so that much, worked right? out real well. Right. But Halleck decides he's just this. Buell isn't doing anything. I'm just going to act alone. Screw it. So he sends Grant up to Tennessee. Towards Corinth. Yep. Now Lincoln, who's also pissed at Buell because his lack of movement, mm-hmm. he is gonna put Buell's entire army of the Ohio under Halleck's command. So now Halleck has to call the shots now. If you ever wonder why Buell hated Halleck, this is probably
0: why. Yep. Meanwhile, Buell's also yeah. friends with G McClellan. Yeah,
1: well that's exactly. Now Halleck orders Buell to meet up with Grant to advance to Corinth where Johnson's growing and training army was sitting. Yeah. Now, Buell naturally was slow to move. Grant probably sat waiting for him at Pittsburgh Landing, doing Tennessee, which is where he went. What's that?
0: He was doing some whittling.
1: He proved doing some whittling, while waiting that phone to ring. It never happened. It must never have been it. a Friday. you know. <laughs> and, and so so Johnston, realizing Grant was waiting, uh, Albert City Johnson rather, in such a vulnerable spot, Decides to take the initiative and attack him on mm-hmm. April 6th, 1862, which is going to, of course, is going to result in the Battle of Shiloh, yeah. right? So Buell does arrive day late and a dollar short on April 7th. And help, he does help drive Grand drive back the Rebs to, all the way back to Corinth. Beer Guard's now in charge because Albert City Johnson goes up the spout and he gets shot in the leg and yep. bleeds out, and that's the end of that. If you want the full details of Shiloh, please refer to our episode. Yes. But we're just kind of hitting this real quick. So at the end of the day, Beer Guard's going to retreat back to Corinth and eventually all the way back to Tupelo, Mississippi. And for that, he's going to get fired by Jefferson Davis and replace him with Braxton Bragg, which is kind of bullshit because there was a million reasons why that – he, Corinth was was unsustainable. For well, army, it
0: was but... it was it was to do with the fact that there was at that point there, and this will carry into reasons that Perryville has fought, which we'll talk about more in our next episode. We might get into a little bit at the end of this episode, but Burgart has to leave Corinth because of supplies. Like well, it was really a, w- it was a the, drought. It was the water. It was the
1: war. yeah. It was a drought.
0: <laughs> and know. I don't think people realize like how much water an army needs, and it's not just for the men; it's for the horses. But if you're going to fight battles. You need a certain amount of water every time you fire a cannon, right?
1: You need you need to gallons of water per cannon. The issue was you had no drinkable water. Exactly. The only the only drinkable water the soda is ruined by using it as a latrine. Yeah. So you didn't have any, right? So, Beauregard is going to have to withdraw from Corinth in the face of the enemy. Puts out the Quaker logs and sneaks out of Dodge and goes back to Tupelo. Of course, uh, Jefferson Davis loses
0: his mind and brings Braggs in. I honestly think that Davis was looking for a reason to get rid of Beauregard because he didn't like Beauregard that much. I think Davis was the type of person that kept his friend. Like, he liked his friends being in charge. Like, he's friends with Polk, and Polk makes this huge error in going into Kentucky and breaking that neutrality, right? Meanwhile, you know, the only reason Polk ends up leaving command is because he meets a cannonball and it doesn't work out too well for him. Thank you to Oliver Otis Howard for that one. Um, There's our second OO reference. Braxton Bragg is also friends with Jefferson Davis as well. So there's Bragg and his army sitting at Tupelo, Mississippi, and he's thinking, okay, I've got to get back into Kentucky somehow, and we've got to make something happen, because at this point, the union is just starting to threaten Vicksburg, but the other place they're threatening is Chattanooga. Those are two places that the Confederacy absolutely has huh. to hold on to.
1: Buell's got 110,000 guys, the Army of the Ohio. He's, he's in Corinth. Halleck, not trusting Buell in any way, shape, or form, is going to go to Corinth, take, take command. But Bragg's got about 30,000 guys, and that number is slowly growing in that Army of the Mississippi. They're just 50 miles away. So sitting, sitting 50 miles away in Tupelo, his army, is still a mess. A lot of these guys in in Bragg's army, they're conscripted, they don't want to freaking be there. Yeah. This is where he benefits by having Halleck. Halleck took a whole month to travel from Shiloh to Corinth, which is 30 miles away. Yep. Which you can you can roller skate backwards with your headband on
0: faster. <laughs> Listening okay? to call me, maybe
1: with your whistle. Yep. Okay. With the four <laughs> wheels, not the blades. Okay. Now you you could you could do that. Now Bragg used that time to discipline his troops. Now people don't study Bragg don't realize what a bastard he was as far as training goes. Oh my god. He was he he would execute soldiers for the seemingly innocent mistakes of their guns discharging by accidents, which they make a pill for, by the way, in case you're curious. (laughs) But but his goal was to take that mob and turn it into a fighting army. he's gonna use the opportunity that he knows Halleck is not gonna hit him. So he's gonna sit there and he's gonna work them, which he does brutally. And By June of 1862, you know, you kind of hinted at this a little bit ago, General Kirby Smith is replacing Zollicoffer of the Department of East Tennessee after he got whacked at Mill Springs in January, okay? And he's been pushed out of the Cumberland back gap towards Chattanooga. So here's where you you said a second ago that dance for Chattanooga happens. Halleck begins to send troops of of the army in corn towards Chattanooga, right? Now, Bragg... He's sitting there. He realizes, shit, Halleck is actually doing something. Mm-hmm. I better do something, too. He has no choice, even though he's got not as many guys, to, he has to send troops to aid Smith, to Chattanooga. And this is really, as these troops on both sides are starting to move, this is kind of that once they start moving, they don't stop until like it's a Perryville. No. They just keep moving around yeah. and around and around.
0: Yeah, this is the movement that begins this kind... This is probably the first phase into what will become this invasion into uh, Kentucky and become the Kentucky campaign. But Bragg is going to transfer his army of 30,000 infantry over 800 miles using half a dozen different railways from Tupelo through Meridian, Mobile, Montgomery, and Atlanta before finally getting to Chattanooga on July the 29th. This is one of, at the time, one of the biggest transfers of an army. That has happened and is done via the railway system as well. Mm-hmm. But you can just, you know, and, and you think back to when Chattanooga was captured, like looking back to this, like when it's finally taken by the union, you realize the importance. Like if he's like, oh, fuck, I got to get all my troops there right now. Chattanooga and Vicksburg are the two most important cities. He's taken them all to Chattanooga.
1: Kirby Smith, who's aggressive, yeah. as he sees the union starting to move and he sees the command and control structure in Kentucky all spread around, he's starting to realize that there's an opportunity that they can do something here, especially in Middle Tennessee, which appears now to be ripe for an attack. So, you know, he probably shoots, you know, Bragg a text because probably Facebook Messenger was probably down. Well, so <laughs> that is the he, says, he, he says, oh, God, he says, you know, Middle Tennessee is exposed. We could we could do something with this. So Bragg, of course, I don't know. I don't know. Finally he comes around. Mm-hmm. He's like, you know what? All right. I'm going to move my base of operations, to your point, to Chattanooga, okay? This is where, you know, an important note to point out about this, and we've talked about it off and on, is the weather here. Mm-hmm. Now, the region of that country was experienced tremendous heat, lack of rain, and it was creating a significant drought, okay? Water was a premium. When we get to the Battle of Perryville, this water is what's going to be the cause of the entire battle. Yeah. That's what the flashpoint is going to be buell and bragg are both moving towards chattanooga bragg especially his army is in great spirits they have yeah. been training they're moving um they've been resting they've been sitting around they feel like they can beat anybody okay bragg was convinced now that he has the men and he has the wherewithal to maybe finally cross that northern border over to tennessee and get into kentucky now mm-hmm. so buell on the other hand He's also moving through Chattanooga, okay, and he's stuck in that heat, and he's having his ass slapped around by Nathan Bedford Forrest yep. and John Hunt Morgan's cavalry. He's having a tough time
0: yep. getting there. And Lincoln's getting annoyed with him because he's, like, Lincoln's like, can you can you fucking take Chattanooga, can you? And Buell's like, I can't. I need more reinforcements, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, he's just, and this is a pattern when we talk a little bit more about Buell in detail here in a few minutes. Like, this is something with Buell. He's Slow to the point where even McClellan complains about it. He doesn't move. he doesn't get things done, I guess you could say about him
1: June eleventh eighteen sixty two this is when they really begin to spring the the eventual plane. We kind of talked about a little bit on the Richmond thing. yeah this is when they sick John Hunt Morgan and his cavalry of twenty five hundred handpicked dudes into Kentucky from Sparta, Tennessee to do cavalry shit. They're gonna move through Middle Kentucky, right up the Ohio River, right up to Cincinnati. Actually, get across it, but you know, Bragg says don't go into freaking. There he does anyway. It's a, it's a, it's a big thing. He gets up there, has no problem, and he wreaks absolute havoc on the Union. He captures six thousand Union troops. Yep. He destroys thirty-four bridges. Uh, he a bunch of railroad. He terrorizes the state. And what he did is, he paved the road for Bragg, who knew the state was completely had its pants down.
0: Yeah. At this point. And it was to the point where the governor of Kentucky, the union military governor, like, and even president Lincoln, they're receiving all these frantic appeals for help. Like they are having a stampede in Kentucky in a way, like, you know, it's also been said too that Morgan's raid surpassed what uh, Jeb Stewart's ride around McClellan did. Like Morgan caught caused millions of dollars in damage and millions of dollars of lost supplies by what he did there it's one of the reasons I think that gave Bragg and Smith the, the confidence they needed that they could do this, that they could launch this campaign into Kentucky to take it. But you know, Morgan, oh, oh. he's absolutely relentless with this.
1: He does. He, he gets his brother killed in this though. So it is isn't yeah. sunshine for him, but you're absolutely right. In August of 1862, Jefferson Davis writes to Bragg after he gets the report of Morgan's raid here and says, "Um, it's time to go into Kentucky. There's no one there, yep. you know? So Kirby Smith, is going to be the guy. He's going to take his 19,000 merry men, and he's going to he'll be the lead element into Kentucky, and will drive into Kentucky through that Cumberland Gap with his four divisions. So, mm-hmm. this endless heat is still the issue, um, the lack of water. Plus, trains going to slow their roll as they're going, but they're going to keep they're going to keep going. By the time you get to late August now, they're going to march towards Lex- Lexington, Kentucky, and they're going to run into an experienced, green federal troops under General Marlon Manson in William Bull Nelson, just south of the city of Richmond. Now, we talked about this, but I'm not yeah. going to spend too too much time on this. But needless to say, August 30th, 1862, at the Battle of Richmond, where, of course, Patrick Claiborne, got to mention him, he's going to attack those Green Union troops at the Mount Zion Church as the lead division under Kirby Smith. This battle will become one of the, if not the most, lopsided Confederate victories in the entire war. The Union troops get routed. They take 5,000 casualties, and they push get pushed back all the way to Cincinnati. That's yeah. how bad they got they got their butt slaps.
0: Yeah. This defeat was not what the Union needed at this time. Battle of Richmond is being fought at the same time as Second Manassas. And this is something to consider when you're looking at this campaign in Kentucky is what's going on in the East and how that just like overshadows what's happening here in the West which I think is equally as important because this is something that Lincoln is shouldering Lincoln is not just shouldering that emancipation which is very important that's probably the most important thing he's got going on right now and that's why Antietam kind of comes out as the shining battle in all of this in late summer early fall of 1862 but there's Mm -hmm. also this stuff happening in Kentucky which when you look at how Lincoln felt about Kentucky was saying that he had to have it with it's, it's what's holding everything together. If it falls, then we're going to lose everything else. We're going to be fucked. You know, this, I think Kentucky is so understudied and this is such an important part of the civil war that Uh I think if you study what's happening in the Eastern theater at this time, you need to study what's happening in the Western theater in Kentucky too to have a full understanding of, you know, Mm -hmm. what exactly is happening because guess What, if Kentucky falls to the Confederacy, I don't think it's really going to matter what happens in the Eastern Theater.
1: What's interesting about Kentucky is you have different cities who, are so you have Lexington, which is extremely pro-Confederate, yep. and you have Louisville, which is pro-Union. So September 2nd, you know, of 1862, this is just after now the Battle of uh, of Richmond. The Rebs are going to keep moving. They're going to get to Lexington, Kentucky. And they're going to enter the town as conquering heroes and mm-hmm. liberators. They're going to walk in. They're going to, they're going to get the key to the city. They're going to be – so they're going to walk in there with their chest pumped, uh, pumped high. Yep. Morale is completely sky, ha- sky after the Richmond victory and their treatment in Lexington. I mean there are people who they're marching through and they're finally being welcomed as heroes. Now, Bragg, his army is up to 40,000 people now. And he is Marshall through Kentucky. You can imagine him as you know, strutting like a chicken probably. Who, who the hell knows? <laughs> but but
0: Kirby I just imagine him as some kind of proud rooster, you know.
1: Uh, probably. Kirby Smith, you know, he now having taken Lexington, and his, he's already sitting scheming his next move now. Yeah, he is. Smith, S- Smith decides he's on to Cincinnati, as a popular football coach likes to yeah, say. Yeah, and guess who he, he says, says to Cincinnati? He says, Henry, as you say, Heth. Heth. And he sends Henry Heath's division across the Ohio River into that Queen City, and he also sends John Scott and his cavalry guys to Louisville. Right, yeah. so he's splitting. But September third, the next day, the rebels are going to actually occupy Frankfort, which is the capital of Kentucky. Yeah, in case you don't know, which is just north of Lexington, so it's right on the corner. The Commonwealth of Kentucky now is in full shit panic. And dr- don't, you and don't you mean the great state?
0: Don't you mean the great state of Kentucky?
1: So they're, they're, they're in a full panic mode and it's actually going to result in 70,000 troops signing up for the union nationally. Yeah. That's how, that's
0: how it's going to be. The other thing that happens too is Lincoln gets a telegram from the very concerned citizens in Louisville that says the panic still prevails. Lexington and Frankfort are in the hands of the rebels unless the state is reinforced with veteran troops, Kentucky will be overrun. So this is another t- thing to consider when you're looking at Kentucky is, so not only is he dealing with the fallout of second Manassas, He's dealing with this too, yeah. you know, and, and that's the one thing I, I mentioned this on our Facebook live, you know, there's been a couple of Lincoln biographies I've, I've read where they really, they talk a lot about what he's dealing with second Manassas and the emancipation. Kentucky never really gets mentioned too much. It's almost like a footnote, but I think it's on his mind as much as what's happening in the Eastern theater too. And I think that's why it's so important to study it. Well, I
1: think it has to be, I mean, oh, yeah. he's lucky, but you know, Kentucky's, you know, that town, that Covington we mentioned there, mm-hmm. they get placed under martial law. But the thing about it, though, is that Kirby Smith raid with those guys was just kind of a temporary thing because they, they spread themselves a little too yeah. thin so that they had to fall back to Lexington. But the beat rolls on September 13th, 1862. Bragg's primary force is still marching and they're going to arrive in a place called Glasgow, Kentucky, which is just east of Bowling Green. The next a couple of days later, on the seventeenth of eighteen sixty-two, which I think there was another battle in the east around there. I think so on that date. I
0: think. Yeah, I think so. But I think,
1: I, yeah, this is a, a fun story: the, the James Chalmers story, right? So James Chalmers. Oh yes, the, I yeah, I was right? I was so, reading
0: about that. The the whole thing with uh, Wilder and.
1: So so they get all excited. They get the, they get their dander up. They decide they're going to go um they're going to go attack a bridge in a place called Munfordville, yep. Kentucky, and. They get their ass kicked unexpectedly. Yeah. Brad gets pissed off. Right. And they eventually the whole, they surround the whole town. they get the whole, the union guys that have surrendering. Well, It's but a really, it's
0: it, actually a really cool story of what happens here. Well, no, I shouldn't say cool. It's an interesting story because it involves Colonel John T. Wilder, who we see later on at, at Chickamauga. And what happens with it is, um, so Munford bill is occupied by the, the union And Wilder's commanding the garrison here, which is three regiments behind fortifications. So what happens is Chalmers approaches since Kirby Smith had told him that there were not more than 1,800 men, entirely raw troops and that they were fortifying their position, but that the railroad and telegraph had been destroyed in their rear, cutting them off completely from all communication and reinforcements. Um, Mm -hmm. So Chalmers goes out to Wilder and says, Hey, do you want to surrender? And um, Wilder basically says, fuck you. No. No. Get out of here. So then Chalmers launches some frontal assaults, which are repulsed. So Bragg is pissed at Chalmers for even attacking in an unauthorized and injudicious assault. I'm sure he said it in much more colorful language than that. But still, though, he's kind of like, I do want these bastards to surrender. So could you make that work? So what Bragg does, he forces his army to march around 25 miles the night of September 15th, 16th to Munfordville. And then he realized that Buell's forces are near, decides to see if there's one last chance at surrendering. So Wilder again goes under a flag of truce behind enemy lines. And this time it's Simon Bolivar Buckner that shows him the Confederate strength to show that it's not really a great idea for him to be carrying on. And Wilder takes one look at it and he's like, yeah, you know what? We're done here. We'll, we'll surrender. So the Federals are all paroled the next day and they have to leave Munfordville but it said that when they left one confederate soldier said that the union troops were all very well clothed looked fat and sleek and clean and neat and were in strange contrast to our own hungry ragged and dirty looking rebels so they're leaving because they've been in Men- munford bill seemingly having the time of their life they've been had well supplied they've been fed clearly they've had water as well but the one thing with munford bill is that it was clearly just a distraction for the confederates and all it did Ultimately, when you look at this campaign in the grand scheme of things, is it slowed them down? They really didn't gain anything by taking Munfordville. All they got was lost time. And it shows also the miscommunication that's going on between Bragg and Smith. Like it's almost like it's very dis- they're very disjointed. Like Smith is basically somewhat independent from Bragg. The big vision with this campaign is we're going to get Kentucky. We're going to be able to get troops when they're there. Well, they haven't recruited that many troops by this point, um, but it shows that there's not a lot of vision on Bragg's part with, with this campaign. It was good at first and it was you know probably going pretty well till Richmond, but now it's starting. The wheels are really starting to fall off here as we're le- starting to lead into what will be the battle of Perryville.
1: Exactly. So Bragg, they keep moving, and they 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 keep going north to, to get to a place called Bardstown, Kentucky, which mm-hmm. is near Louisville, right? And he, what he wants to do there is he wants to meet up with Kirby Smith. Now he wants to get the band together, again. now that's like okay, now we got to get a little serious here. But they're in still good spirits. Buell is having a shitty time with that army in the south, and they're still still stuck with that lack of water. He moves his army, you know, to Nashville from where he was he was in Huntsville, Alabama, and then when he finally realizes that Bragg was kind of moving. He's going to head north, and he's going to leave George Thomas in Nashville. Yeah. Oh, go, go have fun. I'll just oh, it. no.
0: Yeah. no oh, no.
1: Right? So, so that's what's going to happen. So real quick, Don Carlos Buell, he's born in Lowell, Ohio. So there we go. Okay. In 1818.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And by many accounts, Mary, he was a shy, introvert child.
0: Uh, he was, and he was okay. bullied he, as a kid.
1: Um, he was teased by schoolmates, probably had a bad third-grade picture with a bad haircut, was attacked by a pelican, too. He probably had a really tough childhood. To um, that, um, that
0: was that uh, was sixth grade, and it was a peacock.
1: All right. Well, there we go. <laughs> explain explain the bad haircut, though. But anyway, so he graduates from West Point in 1841, 32 out of fifty two, and primarily because he was a he was a deviant. I mean, he got in trouble, yeah. discipline issues, got but, a bunch of
0: demerits. But 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 he had good math skills.
1: He had very good math skills. He certainly did. He's going to join the third U.S. infantry after he graduates. This is when he beats up the guy with the sword, the butt of the sword. He gets in trouble. Uh, oh, well, the bully becomes the bully. He does. That's probably what it was, you know, too many people. But he ends up getting, He ends up fighting in Mexico. He's breveted three times of bravery. Uh, when the Civil War starts, he, he go, he's, gets sent over to California. But he gets recalled to Virginia after first bull run and got his star thanks to his good friend George McClellan. Yeah. I can only imagine a conversation with them two. It must take five hours to say hello. You know, so <laughs> but McClellan's right? going to get pissed
0: off with Buell later for being right, slow. Exactly. Holy
1: fuck. Know, <laughs> When Mac re- when, when Mac replaces Winfield Scott, uh, he's going to send he's going to send um, Buell out west and, and divide his command between himself and Henry Halleck in 18, November eighteen sixty one. He's going to take over that arm of the Ohio
0: from William Tecumseh Sherman, well, because know, Sherman, because that's, that's right. when Uncle Blingy has his little incident with um, the media and he's been he's said to be insane. So they basically right. have to give Uncle Blingy a bit of a time out.
1: And so Sherman gets put in the corner <laughs> and here comes here comes Don Carlos Buell. So it doesn't take long until the Slows catch up with Don Carlos Buell, yep. who was nicknamed the McClellan of the West, they called him. Yeah. Um, for his, his they called it a deliberate approach of how how he was and his attitude towards the South. He actually, his wife was a slave owner, and he wow. had a lot of pro, he had a lot of pro Southern sympathies. So that's actually again, that's a lot
0: like that's actually a lot like McClellan as well. Not that his wife was a slave owner, but McClellan had a lot of friends who were Southern and he had a little I think, you know, he's a little bit more Southern. Well,
1: they're very they were very, very similar in that regard, especially their attitudes towards the South. They wanted to win the war, but win it slowly and softly like I'm like a man with a slow hand, you know, you want you don't want to beat them. You don't want to hit them too hard because you're (laughs) going to be friends with these guys afterwards. Right. So so that's a very similar approach. September 25th. 1862, Mary, Buell's Army of the Ohio was going to arrive in Louisville, a predominant Union-supporting town.
0: And they're just and leaving what? there now because that's how slow they that's are.
1: Exactly. You know, hit a Cardinals game. But they, <laughs> they're greeted as heroes as well,
0: just like they were in Lexington
1: when the were Confederate. So now, um, now they're feeling good about themselves. The re- one reason why they're so happy in Louisville, besides being a predominant Union town, is they thought that Bragg was going to be coming to them soon. And now he's got, they've got the Union Army there to protect them. So Union morale is extremely high. Word of the victory at Antietam gets there, and they're all excited. The Army got to hang out in Louisville for four whole days, and they were ate like kings and drank like pirates. And you know, suddenly they're feeling great about their prospects. Now they're feeling, hey, you know what? This isn't, this isn't too freaking bad. There must so, have been
0: a DQ there.
1: Well, I, 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 oh, geez, I, I imagine the probably would be, but you know – So a couple of days later, it's October 1st, 1862. Buell's 75,000-man army now is on the march. They left for Bardstown, Kentucky, which is not far from where Bragg was. Mm So we're kind of getting close here to, you know, to to call me maybe time with this battle, right? So Bardstown is southeast of Louisville. It's not far from where Fort Knox is today, in case you ever need Mm -hmm. some gold. You know where to go, okay? Buell felt his army was prepared and in great spirits to fight and attack Bragg, and throw the Rebs out of Kentucky for freaking good. So now, now they're you know they're ready to go. So he's going to take his army of the Ohio, which is going to be divided into three corps. First corps Alexander McCook of Ohioans.
0: Yep.
1: Second corps is Thomas Crittenden, you mentioned Kentucky, right? And the third one is Charles Champion Gilbert from Zanesville, Ohio, where our friend Roger cool. sent a picture of it. Yep. Sent a picture of his grave. But your middle name is Champion. You're doing yep. his, you know something. It was great at this time because when they're marching towards Bragg, he's away in Frankfurt at a political rally. And during one of the speeches, he hears the distant sounds of artillery fire. And he, had, he has a full pucker effect moment, Bragg's and Bragg does. Yep. Bragg is Buell's army, so he quickly had all the bridges in Frankfurt burned, as well as their warehouses. So, welcome yep. to Frankfurt. You burn a whole freaking town up for nothing. It was actually Joshua Still's division, we mentioned last week, I yep. think it was, right? But it scared the living hell out of Braxton Bragg, especially since he wasn't with the army. Because that would have been bad idea Jeans, if Jefferson Davis found out they got smoked in Kentucky. He wasn't even there, right? Yeah. So Bragg now, he's going to order all the rebel troops, all of them, to converge and concentrate on Harrodsburg, Kentucky, which is just east of Bardstown, to prepare for the inevitable arrival of Buell's army. Okay, so now you can see the distant rumblings now. October 6th, 1862. Rebel armies finally start to arrive in Harrodsburg, and their morale is still sky high. The armies have arrived, you know, some get there before others. The one that arrived, they're resting. They all got DQ gift certificates. You know, some divisions were still in transit, though, and they were still coming. And so while they were moving, the other ones were there, but they were just kind of chilling. Buell's army is approaching, but Bragg thought this, and this is where Bragg screws up. He thinks the army of the Ohio was advancing on Frankfurt. Yep. And not not Harrisburg. So he thinks they're 40 miles away and he still has time for all his divisions to unite, those ones who haven't arrived yet. He's he's expected to hit them with everything they have in a place called Versailles, Kentucky.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's where Bragg wants to fight. He's gonna have everyone together. They're gonna to, they're gonna be going towards Frankfurt, and then I'm gonna be able to hit in Versailles, which is just east of Lexington and north of Harrisburg. So he's gonna set up some kind of Gibraltar and just gonna start pounding them. That's what Bragg thinks. Little does he know that Buell is coming up through his Savannah from the back. Ooh. Okay. He's coming up from the south and behind his army. So Bragg is starting to hear, dis, is starting to hear rumors now from scouts saying, Hey, I'm um, not for nothing. I know you're looking this way, but we're hearing stories of a large federal force coming from that away.
0: Yeah.
1: From this direction. Buell has his three corps and three different roads and advancing towards a small town called Perryville, Kentucky. Yeah. That's, where the, that's where they're heading. But Cook's first corps is coming from the northwest, Crittenden's coming from the southwest, and Gilbert's champion from the west, right? This all while Bragg is still moving north towards Versailles with no real knowledge, just rumors, that Buell was right on his tail with his full friggin' army. Oh, by the way, there's still a drought going.
0: Yep, exactly. And there, there, So there's this drought happening, but there's somebody that's going to get to Perryville and that somebody is William J. Hardy is going to arrive at Perryville and Perryville just to and I'm sure we'll talk briefly about it in the next episode so too but Perryville is just a very small village it's only got 300 people but the thing with it is this and this is what Hardy recognizes about it as soon as he gets there holy shit it's got a good road network with connections to nearby, six, to nearby towns in six directions much like a little town in the Eastern Theater that we are all very familiar with gettysburg and also hardy recognizes that if he can stay in this town block the roads that the federals would be prevented from getting to confederate supply depot at bryantsville also perryville is a source of water now although it is just almost like mud puddles at this point which is kind of gross but hey when you're in a drought you know it's kind of like any port in a storm right
1: well, that's why I don't drink, drink tequila, Mary.
0: <laughs> that's what Perryville is. And then Buell learns that the Con- Hardy has halted at Perryville, and they are starting to deploy their infantry there.
1: Yeah, he's, he sets up his pick lines uh, on, on, the, on the three roads that are coming in, yeah. the same roads that he was expecting. And he puts troops in a defensive position at a place called Peter's Hill, which is one of the several undulations in that area, right? Hills. So exactly so um this is october 7th now yep. so we're getting close now to the battle so don carlos buell that same day he's going to sustain an injury that day when he's going to fall off his horse and he's going to be hobbled he will end up setting up his headquarters at a place called the dorsey house which is a little log cabin about mm-hmm. five miles from perryville his plan he's like well this is where it kind of goes off the rail a little bit he wants to attack the next morning on october 8th so he'll have his first two corps get ready around three o'clock in the morning to move Along with that third corps, he's going to send them all, but 3 a.m. is the time. Now, McCook and his first corps don't get the orders until almost 3 a.m. So he's like, "Oh all right, well, okay. He must have my mailman. That's how late that is, <laughs> right?
0: So- no, he's got the Canadian mailman. Trust me, I'm oh, still yeah, waiting exactly. for that John Wilkes Booth book.
1: Oh, God. And he won't be, and so he's not going to be ready to move until five o'clock in the morning. So he's already late. George Thomas, you know, his troops there, Buell's second in command, he doesn't even get the orders right away. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't even know until about three o'clock when that's going on. What's interesting is sometimes these battles, Mary, happen on their own schedules, right? They do. That's kind of what happens, right? So Gilbert's Third Corps is camping along the Springfield Pike, and they discover that they just discover a water source. And we mentioned before how important water was, right? They're going to discover this water source at a place called Doctor's Creek late on the 7th. And due to that drought, drinking water was as rare as gold. I mean, the sight of the springs must have been like you getting locked at the Labatt's Blue Brewery overnight. You know, I can only imagine how excited it must have been. But, Ew, but, wow. they, they, but they find water. So Gilbert's going, to order, <laughs> Gilbert's going to order the 10th Indiana under a guy named Colonel William Colbaugh Kies. But just think of William Colbaugh Kai's is going to send Speed Fry's Second Brigade. <laughs> I dare anyone to challenge two better names back to back of the Civil War. Right? But, you know. It sounded so like
0: Cobra he, Kai.
1: Yeah. So he's going to send, he wants him to set up a picket line on Peters Hill, almost right in front of that 7th Arkansas, who was there earlier. Now it's late at night. Kai's Indianans don't see the Arkansas soldiers because it's dark. I mean, they're right in front of them until about 2 o'clock in the morning. They go, okay, well, you know, these guys look like they, you know, might not be our guys. So Colonel Dan McCook's brigade under Phil Sheridan's division, Sheridan's St. Mary, he's, in yep. he's part of Gilbert's Corps, was also ordered to occupy that hill to protect the creek and the water that they had found. By now, Bragg's figured it out. Bragg knows the Union was in his rear mm-hmm. because the scouts told him they spotted troops while they were that scouting. That sounds really bad. I know. i was bragged though. He's going to get savannered. You have bigger props back there anyway. But <laughs> but 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 his scouts told him that they did spot these troops while they were scouting water themselves. So he knows they're there. And now he's going to have all his divisions start moving to Perryville. So now Perryville, it's not going to be Versailles. It's going to be Perryville. So they're all moving in.
0: Yep.
1: A guy named James Patton Anderson, Mary, he's in, he's in uh, William Hardy's wing. He's going to arrive along with Patrick Claiborne mm-hmm. and Benjamin Cheven's brigades, of guys named Daniel Donaldson, Alex Stewart, and George Maney. We're going to talk about these guys a lot next time. Yeah. Okay. But for now, that's, they're there. Okay. All the tools and all this people are there. Because of water, they all got attracted to this place, and they yeah. found each other. Now they found each other like, well, now what do you want to freaking do? So it's no surprise that in the middle of a drought, that one of the most bloody and pivotal battles of the Western Theater of the American Civil War is going to get fought over water. Cause That's exactly what happened. Yeah, so- Exactly. The Rebs sat in Perryville on the night of October 7th, knowing the next day would bring on the battle. But they ne- I can't imagine either side ever imagine the overall impact to the overall war. This battle that we're going to talk about next week is going to have.
0: Yeah, exactly. And just to quickly set up Hardee's lines that he's got going. So the night of October 7th, he's got his men set up. So he's got General Sterling A.M. Wood north of town. General Bushrod Johnson is to the right of Wood, which, figure out that one. General St. John R. Liddell's Arkansas Brigade is on the crest of, of the bottom hill. And the 7th Arkansas is sent to Peters Hill. I really wanted, mm-hmm. to, I really wanted to set it up, not just, um, you know, for, you know, people listening, but just also because you have Wood and Johnson right next to each other. <laughs>
1: oh, you can also say that Hardy got S- poked by Johnson. Anyway, Sterling Amwood. Oh, how, how many instances are yes. you going
0: to have Sterling A M Wood? And, and that's
1: why these episodes won't get played at the elementary school history classes.
0: <laughs> next to Bushrod Johnson. All right. So I think
1: what this what this is going to do is what what it, why it, we did this to set the stage with this is because these armies have been going around and around the block in Kentucky yeah. for the whole summer, completely. Dry, thirsty, hot, and miserable, right? Bumping into each other, places like Mill Springs, Richmond, you know, all these little places finally, finally getting together and be able to finally fight this pivotal battle that's going to determine Kentucky, a gigantic border state, which could have a trickle down effect on the other border states in the overall war. They're going to hit basically on the march by mistake because of looking for water. Yeah. And when we talk about this, the actual battle next week, the actual carnage that takes place at this, the Union is going to win this battle and it's going to set up Kentucky being kicked out of Confederate control for really the rest of the war. But I think it has so many overall effects about the some of the guys who are involved in this battle. But I think it's um it's gonna prove itself to be pretty vicious one that i think is going to be um, an interesting one to talk about no question
0: yeah and that's why we decided to do this into two episodes because we we wanted to do this justice and plus we'd already covered richmond and we thought well you know let's just talk more in depth about what's going on in kentucky because we both realized in doing the research for this like holy shit kentucky is one of those things that if it falls into confederate hands you know who knows if if something like antietam really is going to matter as much as what it does now but the other thing too is just to highlight that this what is happening in the western theater is just as important as what's happening in the eastern theater you know you you take something like Perryville and you take something like Antietam I think it's like that meme where there's that one guy who's got all the microphones with him and that's Antietam and Uh then there's the one guy that's got one microphone and that's Perryville and I like we, we both get it like Antietam's very important because it allowed Abraham Lincoln that victory to be able to Able to say like hey emancipation proclamation is going to happen now you know it's kind of hard to say like would he have been able to do that or would have been as well accepted or whatever you know if perryville had been a disaster uh-huh. you know no, definitely
1: so i always ask you what's next but now we know what's next next week mary what's yep. next
0: next week we are going to be talking battle of perryville and then we are going to be talking cedar creek and then we will be on to our halloween episode which we will be joined by our very good friend um and also awesome civil war nerd Jen Price also known as Jay Price she'll be coming on to talk civil war ghost stories with us for our second annual Halloween extravaganza um I want to say it's live from the boo barn but that may be kind of creepy
1: No definitely definitely <laughs> it's going to be a uh, it's going to be it's going to be another exciting, action-packed episode as we do that. So yeah. so live coming up on Saturday. And then we got the, the final episode on Perryville, which I think is going to be a great battle. So I think we can drop it here. I think this is a pretty good episode. It took us forever to get signed on today. <laughs> but some, somebody, spilled, somebody spilled coffee on the keyboard up there at Civil War Breakfast World Headquarters yeah. again. But that's the, that's the scoop. So any, any final words from you as we head off into the right blue yonder, behind you and your screen
0: thank you for uh, or thank you to all of our listeners for these last 59 episodes you guys are awesome and thank you for all your support darren thanks to you for bringing it as you always do you are the most awesome civil war nerd i know
1: well i'm just you know, i part of the team mary you know how was <laughs> you know getting yelled at and slapped around and all that good stuff. i'm kidding maybe Bucker. anyway so so that's off we go so everybody thanks for listening to this because uh, i think it's great to set up kentucky I think when you um when you listen to this and you go to bed at night, remember how important Kentucky was to this entire civil war. It was something that for whatever reason, Mary, for whatever reason, it just doesn't get studied. The yin and the yang of, of Kentucky that went back and forth with these two armies and how it culminated, considering the stakes that how you know two good armies in the field, both both presidents wanted, had to have it. Yep. And and just how it all ultimately played itself out is really, really a great study. So that being said
0: off we go. On to Perryville part two next week. Anyway, so everybody have a awesome Saturday. Uh, We hope you join us for our Facebook live at 10am. And we will see you all next week.
1: All right. Peace out.
0: See you guys.